movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Mr. Hannaford, could you please slow down? Mr. Hannaford! What he creates, he has to wreck. It's a compulsion. Want me to bring you another spot? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have our own movie. A real movie. The other side of the movie. Well, here it is. If anybody wants to see it. Welcome to the Twin Geek Cast. We have an incredible show for you today, covering Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind, and your box office top ten for the weekend. And I'm here with David. Hey, we're doing great today. How are you? Oh, doing pretty good. Uh, I'm excited for our film today. Yeah, this one's going to be a big one to talk about for certain. Absolutely. Um, Before we get into that, let's go through our box office. At number ten, we have The Hate You Give. Um, we're looking at it as sort of bringing Tupac to like the millennial generation. Uh, it's hard to figure out with rap exactly how it's going to involve, how it's going to evolve and how it's going to influence future generations. It's still such a new art form that, uh, now we know how to deal with the deaths and how to, uh, make the social consciousness, uh, kind of expand into a bigger picture. It's kind of interesting to call it still a newer form because it is but it's been around for almost 40 years now right i think that we're still dealing with like what it evolved into in the 90s like it didn't become it didn't go into like a bigger form than it was in then so uh i feel like it's kind of devolved in some way into like mumbling rap and uh less socially uh conscious music well, you still got some artists out there, like, um, you know, I know Childish Gambino is a big one who's still making waves and innovating, though he's wrapping up here pretty soon, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, that stuff's good, but uh, I don't know a lot about the movie, to be honest. I I haven't read the book. I, I don't read a ton of young adult novels, but uh, I'm very excited to look into it. Yeah. At number nine, we have Hunter Killer, which is the submarine movie with uh, Gerard Butler and Gary Oldman. Uh, they went, lived on a submarine for a while for practice. Uh, I don't have any real interest in getting out to it. It sounds like generic military stuff. I'm wondering how many movies you can make that take place on a submarine before it just gets kind of boring. I mean, what, you got like Das Boot and Hunt for Red October, and then that's it. We don't need any more submarine movies. Yeah, I feel like the genre ended in itself at Hunt for Red October. I don't need any more. I'm done. It's, it's a submarine. Uh, I mean, you can barely even live on it without, you know, having the same shit happen every day. I don't know. Yeah, have you been in one of those? It's kind of like a end-to-end. There's it's there's nothing very interesting about being in one. I think the interest is, like, from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Um, then following that, we have uh, Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween hanging in at uh, 8, still in there in uh, November. Um the weird thing about this is it's not as much Jack Black. He was busy shooting uh, the house with the clock in its walls. So, uh, we don't get the um, the entire reason we watched the first movie. It's kind of weird because both House and the Clock in its Walls and this seem to kind of cater to the same demographic and kind of seasonal aspect. So, I don't know, you know, it sounds like Jack Black just committed to the better of the two. Yeah, I feel like he's... <laughs> I feel like since Goosebumps, he's chosen a few better roles too, because he's had a he had that bit in Jumanji, which was pretty excellent, and then uh, um, what's it called? Uh, Don't worry, you can't get far on foot. One of his best dramatic roles uh, wrapped up in a few minutes in that one. That uh, House of the Clock is Walls, I think, is a is a more interesting adaptation than the kind of throw everything at the wall Goosebumps adaptation. At number seven, we have Smallfoot. Um, it's not leaving the charts. It feels like that's, it's been in for uh, six weeks now. That's interesting. I don't know. I, you know, looking at the premise of the film and kind of the general advertisement and whatnot, I didn't expect anything spectacular. I certainly didn't expect anything that was going to be with any staying power, especially being released in October. It looks like a Christmas movie. Yeah, and I feel like I know it has some kind of... S- element of social commentary to it that uh, maybe it's valuable during voting season but i i don't know if we need that from our yeti movie either oh maybe we'll see it get in 
a nomination at the for best animated film this year. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see about that. At uh, number six, we have a uh, Venom. It's still hanging in there. I don't know if uh, if it's if it's ever going to drop off at this point. We'll be here in twenty years. Be like, oh, Venom's still in the charts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Venom and its sequels will be in, you know, two years from now. We'll be looking at both of them in the charts. Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, that n- new Venom spinoff movie still hasn't surpassed Venom in the box. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be here a while, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll be getting definite sequels. It's been here forever. It's still making millions of dollars. Um, it didn't have a very significant drop off the last few weeks. Uh, it's staying in there. And at number five, we have Halloween. You had just watched the uh, original again. Last week I had, yeah. You know, still feel basically the same on it. Uh, not, not a whole lot of new things to say about it necessarily. People are enjoying it. We're going to get lots of slasher sequels. You know, I kind of wish something like Suspiria, which seems like more radical and interesting, was doing the numbers, but they didn't advertise it well, and they released it in a stupid time, so... Yeah, I guess on that note, I should say that Suspiria is at number 19 this week and made less than a million dollars. I don't think that's very good, even though it's limited release. I feel like we're getting way too far outside the uh, horror window right now that uh, that giving it a wide release in a week isn't going to help very much either. Oh, no, it looks like they're going for that more artsy cult following anyway. I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie for one thing that's not, you know, theater uh, ideal. But yeah, I feel like maybe it'll make up some numbers when it gets a home release. It's going to have to. <laughs> yeah, it will. At number four, we have uh, Star is Born. Uh, this year is full of interesting musical uh, movies. Uh, since La La Land, I feel like it regenerated an interest in creating more musical experiences. Um, Bradley Cooper is pretty, uh, pretty decent as first-time director. You'd think that... He's been around uh, the other side of the camera pretty much his entire life, but uh, he just has that confidence of a of a director that's you know made a lot of movies. We're actually getting a lot of uh, actor director you know actors transitioning to director debuts lately because you got Paul Dano with Wildlife and Jonah Hill with Mid Nineties recently. But it seems like Bradley Cooper is doing the best out of them. You know, Stars Born has both financial you know success and critical acclaim, whereas mm-hmm. the other two. Less so. Yeah, um, there's there's a bunch of movies like it too about like the the fading rock star or like the what's it called Vox Lux. Um, yeah, Vox Lux is coming, you know, re- uh, pretty soon here too. With Natalie Portman. We just yeah, we have a bunch of movies like a uh, Juliet Naked as well, where uh, Ethan Hawke plays the struggling rocker is. Who's a few years past his prime? I guess he got, and then you know, Bohemian Rhapsody is the big one this week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before that, at number three, we have a uh, Tyler Perry's "Nobody's Fool." Yeah. He what are your thoughts? In, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't care about Tyler Perry personally. I know there was a big buzz because he just announced that his Medea character is being retired for good, and all the fans simultaneously wept. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was the quietest weeping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Nobody's Fool seems like his most interesting just because it has Tiffany Haddish in it is like a central role. But then six weeks ago, we just had Night School. So I feel like we're getting exhausted with this top 10 list. Like we have two Jack Black movies in the last month, two Haddishes. I feel like uh, I feel like all our actors are becoming commodities that are just processed. Yeah, you know, it's almost like uh, the general audience demands the same people over what we, you know, just recently we are going through the Dwayne Johnson you know, <laughs> wave as well. It's nice to have, like, two quiet months where we haven't seen a Dwayne Johnson movie. Yeah, it's relish impressive. it while you can. <laughs> right. Yeah, next year we'll get another ten of them. Yeah. Um, before that, we have The Nutcracker and The Four Realms making a premiere. Um, did it get to number two? It did. It uh, made $20 million, which is pretty disappointing for a big Disney movie. I know it had a much larger budget, and it's really not even going to um, make its money back, I don't think. 
I guess that's my fault still for assuming, you know, that it was going to get up or it wasn't going to get to number two because, I don't know, just looking from the trailers and the advertising and even just down to the premise, I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> this looks dumb. Who wants to see a Nutcracker cinematic universe? I don't know. <laughs> I think it has. I have a problem with having like two directors doing different things as well. It doesn't really interest me. I I like um, to have an authorial voice that kind of controls like a tone of a movie. Well, with Disney anyway, you're not necessarily going to get that authorial voice to begin with because they got their tight grip around the production. I don't know. I just. And, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting anything from the Nutcracker, whatever. I don't even know what the hell it's supposed to be about. Some just magical, advanced fantasy <laughs> Christmas land bullshit. I don't know. And the title doesn't really tell you anything. Um, why does the Nutcracker have four realms? We don't it's know. A, uh, they just mash these two things together that, you know, it's like familiar property that everybody knows and, you know, idea that's going to spawn a bunch of sequels that you want to hear more about. And they smash the two to together in a title to try and make some money off of it. I mean, the Nutcracker isn't even the interesting part of the Nutcracker story. It's <laughs> yeah. all about the Mouse King. And I think that's kind of what it goes into. It's kind of a takeaway on the Mouse King story, but it doesn't tell you that in the title at all. No, I don't know. It's weird. It's also weird just it's so early in the time as well. Like, mm -hmm. this is clearly a Christmas movie. It's called The Nutcracker. Release it in <laughs> December. And then I think we have Grinch next week to look forward to. So ah. <laughs> Christmas comes early. Yeah, sometimes a little too early. <laughs> Speaking of coming too early, we have Bohemian Rhapsody at number one. Yay. <laughs> a lot of fanfare. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I love Queen. I, don't get me wrong. I love Queen. I think we I'm both not... love Queen. Who doesn't love Queen? Everybody loves Queen. Queen's great. Fantastic. I'm also glad to see that they've been successful outside of, you know, Freddie Mercury, you know, his uh, unfortunate mm -hmm. passing however long ago now. But the controversy surrounding this film sounds much more interesting than anything in the actual material they're supplying. Not that you can't get interesting material out of a Queen story, but they're clearly not interested in that. And I feel like it's been washed over by the band. Uh, like, this is more true to their wishes than maybe what the reality of the story is. Uh, the band members all come off, like, you know, very well. Um, they're interested in keeping a family together, and Freddy's... Uh, you know, a little bit controlling of all his ideas. And I don't know what's going on with the Brian Singer thing, but uh, I thought Rami Malek had a fantastic role as uh, Freddy, although he has these false teeth that I couldn't stop looking at the whole time. Like, like I know that Freddy had, like, these big, you know, incisors in his mouth, but they're so overstated on Rami, and they, they protrude from his mouth in a way that he's, like, always, like, grinning a little bit to show him off, and... Man, that that distracted me the whole movie. Sometimes it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you want to be accurate to the character, but if it's going to be distracting, you can shave some of the other qualities off to get a more, you know, practical representation of the character. I think what's interesting about this Bohemian Rhapsody story is that it reminds me a lot of the 1991 film The Doors from uh, Oliver Stone, because it's another film about a band who was super successful, and who was very much so um, kind of categorized by their lead singer, and it has a very fantastic central performance, who the person who embodies that, because Val Kilmer is amazing as uh, Jim Morrison. The only thing I'd add is I think Oliver Stone has a better understanding of like the aesthetic of rock music or creating the feeling of the doors in the movie, whereas uh, Bohemian Rhapsody just feels like a... It wants to be four or five things, but not in the way the song Bohemian Rhapsody is like a, a celebration of like six genres. Right. Sometimes it's like a music video, but then it doesn't make sense because it's a biopic. But then it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit more hagiography. Hey, it's more uh, idealized version of a biopic. It's not, um, I don't feel like it's a fair representation. Uh, the track list is usually out of order um like songs come in before they're popular uh he wears outfits before he would have worn them it's just those um it's just like that ignorance of tone and place that uh kind of sets it apart from the doors which i think is a much better picture 
the doors definitely is is a great picture you know underrated in some ways and i think a fair representation of things even you know having good representation of the band as a whole as well as the central focus on the lead but it's interesting because bohemian rhapsody almost itself comes off like a greatest hits version of queen it's like let's just package all of the best familiar stuff for everyone here even if it's not exactly representative of them as a whole and their vast you know stylings and i think that's a commentary on queen as well like a you know, by the time I was growing up, I was basically going off Greatest Hits albums. They were already at that point in their career, like early 90s, you know, it was pretty much done just before Freddie had died. And uh, this whole movie wraps around their Live Aid performance and their recreation's really good lip syncing and dancing. But I also think you should just go on YouTube and watch the Live Aid performance. Yeah, I mean, that's you're probably going to get a much more satisfying bit out of that. Basically, otherwise, you're just watching Rami Malek, you know, a pretty good pretend being Freddie Mercury, but, you know, you can get that just by watching The Man. I think it would get a more satisfying experience out of that. It's it's like you know, really good karaoke. It's fun, but it's still karaoke. Yeah, and you're just better off watching the thing. I think, you know, what it is and why this film is doing so successful is Queen is such a ubiquitous, you know, brand. Everybody knows Queen. Everybody loves the same five popular songs, which are great, but... It's not what the best of Queen is. You know, you're missing those deep cuts that really defined the band more so. Queen is not, we will rock you and we are the champions. <laughs> Queen is stone cold crazy and body language and I want to break free. You know, some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's get that. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting how they're placed in there. Um, I guess we should talk about Mike Myers in the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> he he uh, comes in, plays an agent, uh he makes a Wayne's World joke that um, Bohemian Rhapsody isn't the kind of car uh, song that kids would headbang to in the car, which should be illegal, honestly. Ugh, that's such an awful and forced joke. Like, the only way that could be more frustrating is if he said it while staring at the camera and slowly putting a Wayne's World cap on his head. <laughs> that's basically how it goes, too. Did, didn't um, he also? I think he did something else recently. Okay, no, it was a little while ago. I'm looking up now. Like, what was he's it? just like Mike Myers' career is just you know, riding off of the success of Shrek still, as well as just being in weird, unfitting cameo parts. Like, I don't know if you remember, he has a role in Inglorious Bastards. That's almost ten years ago now, but yeah, I still I can still remember how weird that is and how it stands out. He's such a well. Post Austin Powers, been. he didn't really have a lot as far as like leading comedy. I mean. I like Love Guru more than pretty much anyone. I think definitely but, more than me. Yeah, definitely more than you. I don't. I don't doubt that. I don't think it's a good movie. I just like it. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will do my um, best not to judge. <laughs> no. Uh, should we move on to our? Yeah. Uh, I, I guess. I guess that just best wraps up for Bohemian Rhapsody. It's. You know, it is what it is. Your grandma, or your mom, or whoever is going to enjoy it because they like Queen, but it's you know definitely lesser than it should be but we all like queen and we don't need a reminder necessarily right now let's move on to the highlighted film for the week movies and friendship those are mysteries and religion the baron's into that and i know his material too you ought to get away from both a mystery may reveal it never explains right yes just like you mr anaford just like me and god if it weren't for the difference in sex, how could you tell us apart? Featured film for this week is the recently released Orson Welles' final film project, The Other Side of the Wind. It's pretty miraculous that we're actually getting the opportunity to see this nearly 40 years after it was initially shot. It's finally being presented, and honestly, there's not nearly as much fanfare and you know red carpet rolling as there should be. This will never happen again in ours or anyone else's lifetime. Something of this size and stature, and we have it is available. monument. It is monumentous. Uh, we don't, we never get this kind of movie, and especially not on a TV streaming service like Netflix. Uh, Can you imagine, like, <laughs> you know, Wells's reaction to this idea? I mean, first of all, you, you know, you got to wonder like how far kind of uh, technology has come that we have this as a new service. It's essentially a different thing than television you know like you know that was a huge thing when it blew up in the 50s but now we have streaming as well which is changing the game and there's an orson wells film being released through this new platform 
I mean, weird. in in God's world, you'd think it would be on Criterion, but we're not living in God's world anymore. We're in no. the streaming service. Oh, yeah. But, hey, hopefully it'll get to a Criterion release eventually. They have all those great supplements as well. It's begging for it. More than half of Orson Welles' filmography is on Criterion. Let's just get the rest on there, and we'll throw out a, you know, a Criterion Orson Welles box set like they just did for Bergman. Give me that. I want it. I mean, that would, <laughs> that would be beautiful to have. I think we all need that. And uh, after watching this movie, that was my first impression, was that uh, I guess I should get out with it, that my only downside is that I can't own it right now. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that obsessively. One of the interesting things I saw, and hopefully this is an indicator um, that they will release it in some way, is that uh, out of the kind of thing you would expect um, of Netflix's kind of uh, demeanor, what they would normally do is that they actually allowed the editors and everyone to make physical film prints of it. They printed about six 35mm prints of the film, which is crazy. And I think they know what's at stake. I mean, now that they're dealing with Corone and uh, Wells, you're dealing with some of the best directors of all time. Uh, we're going to need physical copies. Uh, uh, I think we realized with Filmstruck a couple weeks ago just how ephemeral and... Uh, limited streaming services really are they're just they're not even selling us a license to something just a just the ability to stream their license so we don't own anything nothing is permanent definitely you know if you can you should be trying to preserve in your own way especially some of these classics and that's what's kind of frustrating as well about the film getting as little fanfare as it is is that this is not only the biggest film to come out in this year or even this decade, like probably this millennium, you know, is going to be an unfinished Orson Welles film. Mm -hmm. I'm not claiming it to be the best film to come out in this century or any other, by any means, but it is the most significant, you know, because of the size and stature of it and whatnot. It's nothing of this importance and, you know, uh, know, is going to come, come along ever again. I think that's why we're both so excited to bring it here because, uh, at least between us, there's been an extreme amount of fanfare. I know we've we been talking been, about it all week, and yeah, we have been super excited for it. I've especially been super excited getting geared up for it. I watched all of Orson Welles' films that he made up until here, kind of in anticipation. And what do you feel like that's given you as far as context going into the film? It's actually given me a lot, uh, I feel like, especially in his last couple films. You can see the thought progression of Wells as he's building up here. Um, you know, The Other Side of the Wind is a film about a Hollywood director coming back after some years in exile to make a big splash and kind of a comeback. And that's very much so the same position Wells was in at the same time. The character he has here, Jake Hannaford, is not a direct reflection of Wells, but it's got a little bit of inspiration there. He's obviously taking some cues from his life and putting there. But I think what's and I think that I think it's very clear that he's an expatriated American that's uh, that's got great success in America, gone and made the artsy European films. Then he tries to bring his art back Mm -hmm. to America, and it's trying to like overcome the legend of what that looks like, Uh, sort of like a Hemingway kind of story. where the writers used to go off to, you know, Paris and expatriate, and then they make their best art there, but then you can't come home again. Well, that's very much what happened with Wells as well, right after, you know, because Wells had a little bit of time where he was still working in Hollywood up through the 50s, but and he finally got back in with the studios when he did Touch of Evil, where he worked mm-hmm. at, you know, for Universal and did that, and he was feeling really good, everything was going great with that production, and they were super happy about it, seeing the brushes. But then when it came down to editing the work cut, they were like, the studios were devastated. And they were like, oh, no, no, this is not going to work. They fired him from editing, which, you know, and they kind of recut his entire film. And it broke his heart. That's not the first time this happened. They did that with Magnificent Ambersons as well. And I think that was kind of the final push, having that happen again, that pushed him to go off and to make the rest of his films in Europe. That's where he made The Trial and Chimes at Midnight and all his later films. And you can see, especially in those last couple films, right before making The Other Side of the Wind, where Wells' interest in filmmaking kind of turned. You know, in yeah. 68, you know, in 68 he did uh, The Immortal Story, which is a small film. It was a made-for-TV French film. And it's very... Uh, it's about, uh, you know, stories, essentially, and how we want to make them real and whatnot. So immediately you can see Wells' concern with storytellers and stories there. And his next film after that was Effort Fake, 
which very much which... so informs the other side of the wind, not only in its idea of how we tell stories and how things are manipulated and the way in which we see things, but also very much so in the actual filmmaking aspect of it and its editing and pacing and the style and all of that. Well, El- Wells got about 40 minutes of his cut uh, in, on editing, and it feels edited about the same as uh, F for Fake, where you're never sure what um, is actually true. It's about the illusion of cinema in some way, but also about the illusion of a director's place in their own filmography, how they're think, taken by the audience. I think what's interesting is that you can see how, as a filmmaker, Wells evolves over his career. He starts out very much so in his career as an acting director. You know, all of his films are driven by the acting and the characters in it and whatnot. You get around at the time in you know the middle of his career, Touch of Evil, Time Span, and he becomes much more of a camera director. It's all more so about the shots and how they're composed and you know how they communicate things through the long takes, how the camera moves and all that. And right around when you get to F for Fake, and especially here, he's now an editing director. The film is constructed in the editing process. That's what makes it what it is. And that, the, the kind of um, build-up of all that, the final product, is really the other side of the wind, which is very much so an editing film. And it's kind of ironic because he didn't get to complete all the editing of it. I I wouldn't even say it has very much of a story. I guess we should talk about the, the loose stories that it's the last day in a in a director's life, essentially. I, th- I think what's interesting about the setup is, uh, you know, this is pointed out to me recently as well, is that a lot of Orson Welles' films, most of them, start with a character's death. Mm. And that's, that's true of Citizen true. Kane, that's true of Touch of Evil, that's true of Mr. Arcotton, and that's definitely true with Here on the Other Side of the Wind, because it starts I mean, it starts, it starts with the car crash. It's Yeah. Yeah. Well, they don't show. I, I like the framing device of it. It's it reminds me a lot, kind of in this Sunset Boulevard kind of way. It's like, well, this is how this character died. Let's go back and see what kind of led up to that. And mm-hmm. you know, it's done with that quick voiceover with Peter Bogdanovich. I think what's interesting I learned about is that you got that intro from him, and he's telling this from the perspective of older, you know, Peter Bogdanovich. And you could tell it's older as well because of his voice change. Like they recorded it for this. And he even references and, like cell phones and you know tablets or something like that. I think what's then. I think what's so impressive about the editing is that how many years in production this spent and how many revisions it must have gone through, and how they scraped together, uh, you know, something like a hundred. Uh, how many hours would you say they had to work it with? Was, it was about a hundred hours from what I've read and learned. About a hundred hours of footage, and what was interesting is that when they finally. Uh, got to it that they didn't even know how much was there initially there was a lot of time spent just looking through and cataloging all the footage before anything was even considered being you know edited and it seems like as far as a film done through editing that it captures um it captures very specific ideas about what the camera can do and how it can be utilized it's always commenting on the camera's place as a character or as a symbol and a tool. Yeah, so I guess we should establish that as well, is that the film is pre is a kind of faux documentary uh, film. This is long before stuff like Spinal Tap or Blair Witch or whatever the other big ones are that establish this kind of genre. Orson Welles conceived this idea of a film constructed from various different perspectives of cameras, you know, kind of all pieced together before anyone else had come to do it, and it's fantastically done. It's the, the, the whole conceit of the film is that Jake Hannaford, you know, the director, is being followed around by various, you know, uh, film students, documentarians, and journalists who are looking to get some insight into his life. And they are all have their own 8mm or 16mm home cameras, whatever it is, and they're all following him. And so all of the footage of the film and the story is pieced together from the perspective of all these onlookers and paparazzos and whatnot. Um, and very early on, I feel like it has like this erotic spirit to it. There's, you know, a lot of nudity and a lot of, uh, a lot of male gaze behind the camera. Well, it's very um, much so on the, the film within the film. So I guess that's, you know, the, the other aspect of it. So during the party, cause it's all leading up to, you know, the, the whole film takes place at the 70th birthday of director 
Jake Hanford, who I should point out as well is played by John Huston, who is his own prolific director in his own right, directed The Maltese Falcon, The African Queen, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, huge films, you know, basically as prolific as Wells, and he really perfectly fits the role here. But and in the in the documentary also on Netflix, Wells was saying that uh, he wished he hadn't given him the role because it was so good. He uh, wished mm-hmm. he had taken it himself, but that uh, that Houston might have been the only one better than him, so he had I to think, give it to him. I think so, definitely. I mean, the big thing is that uh, Hannah Ford's character is very much so a macho, masculine character, and he has to be driven by that. And Wells, I don't think his personality lends itself as well to that. Houston kind of perfectly embodies that machismo that this Hannah Ford character really needs. He's, and he's just like Hemingway out in Africa, you know, doing the most masculine production, um, living by an old set of American ideals. Uh, you could tell this isn't made in 2018 directly. Um, it does reflect that old American spirit The still has that lingering notion of the great American film, the great American novel. Yeah, I think Houston was definitely perfect in this, and he's a great actor. This is probably the, I mean, he's done lots of different acting jobs as well before, but this one will probably stick out to me even more than his fantastic role in Chinatown as, you know, his his biggest thing. I'll almost remember him better as a fantastic actor than I will a director. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those performances you're just made for that that fits his character naturally. Uh, because they're both such adventurous spirits, and I think that's what connects Orson and Houston kind of on a mental level. That they're, it's evident they have a connection every time that he's on frame. They complement each other. Yeah, I think that's great. What is nice, uh, so there's some other prolific, you know, important cast members in there as well. The kind of protege to Jake Hannaford is played by Peter Bogdanovich. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was originally played by a different actor, but because of the frenetic schedule of the film, they couldn't get him to keep coming back. So they just replaced him with Peter Bogdanovich because Peter Bogdanovich was a great friend of Orson Welles, probably one of his closest uh, friends and confidants. And, you know, the the character he kind of plays is this guy who, you know, has a deep and connective relationship with Jake Hannaford, very much so like uh, Peter Bogdanovich had with Orson Welles. And it's interesting because from a lot of the information you get from documentaries and other interviews with stuff with Bakhtarovich, a lot of the direction he was given by Wells on it was, you know, pretend this conversation is like me and you. This is like us there. So those parallels between Wells's life and the character of Hannah Ford are even more clear when you consider that piece as well. I don't know if I could entirely read into it as a commentary on wells uh, as a person but i think it embodies the character of wells uh who he plays into as a public image yeah, more so than not, who he personally is it's definitely not just wells there's a lot of inspiration there kind of like how uh kane was not just william randolph first even though a lot of people wanted to read it that way it was certainly partially hearst but definitely partially a lot of other people as well same thing with hannah ford here he is partially wells in many aspects but his characterization is more so other characters, very much so. There's a lot of Hemingway, as we've already said. There's a lot of John Ford, especially his mm. machismo and his gruffness. And he, specifically in the way he treats actors as well, and he kind of grooms some of them. That's all very John Ford. And uh, I'd say Oja Coder has one of the best roles, even though she barely has any lines. Her I feel like is, her is crucial to the film, definitely. She plays the actress within the film that Hannah Ford's making and she you know is also there at the party in attendance as well but is definitely more of a kind of wallpaper but the character she plays within the film reveals so much more about Hannah Ford as well and the general state of filmmaking in the 60s and uh, late 60s early 70s and I feel like the way she's brought into the frames how she interacts with characters she doesn't even need words to accomplish what she's doing um in that way, it is a very French version of beauty, a very surface beauty, but also she brings a big aesthetic into the film and the film within a film that make it much more interesting to watch. I guess what's interesting about her involvement as well is it's important to say that Oya Kudar was uh, Orson Welles' um, personal you know, uh, friend. She was basically his girlfriend and longtime partner for the mm-hmm. last 20 years of his life. She worked closely with him on Effort Fake and the various other projects he never got to finish, like The Deep and The Dreamers and stuff. 
and she has a direct uh, co-writing credit on the film here as well she pushed wells to a lot more of those kind of european sensibilities those very sexual aspects of it that's all very much so oya's influence and not directly wells it's important to uh, emphasize her part in this film as well it's easy just to label this as a purely wellsian production but obviously with everything going on even in the the you know writing of the film beforehand it's more than just wells as much as we want to label this as a solely his film and you could see their intimacy in something like the sex scene which is a like terrifying orgasm of a shot and uh you know in the documentary he was talking about how it was made over like three four years in multiple shooting locations and uh it's just powerful stuff and it feels almost terrifying you know, Feels I, like think a... I think it's interesting is that a lot of people have condemned some aspects of F for Fake specifically because they're like, oh, just just Wells using the film as an excuse to show off his girlfriend. Like, Look how hot she is. She's running around, you know, half naked and stuff. I'm showing off how much, you know, sex I'm getting or whatever. And I've always found that funny contrast to here where she is legitimately naked for the majority of the film and is framed <laughs> as this goddess of sex in some ways. It's so over the top because I'm like, oh, you thought F for fake was bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This takes that to the next level. I mean, um, I mean, I don't, I feel like the camera's just like, drooling over her uh, at some point it's very much intentional so the whole idea of is that the film within the film called also called the other side of the wind is a kind of lampoon or mockery of many of the uh artsy kind of 60s uh revolutionary films going on at the time a lot of the french stuff and you know michelangelo antonioni in specific uh la ventura blow up and stuff Mm -hmm. i think specifically uh zabreski's point and easy rider but anyway, um, so all of the very, very explicitly sexual stuff is meant to be over the top. You know, uh, the one thing that will stick in my mind definitely that's almost like way too on the nose is when she walks into that bathroom scene. Mm-hmm. And you got the, the super sexy music playing in the club and whatnot, whatnot. And she comes in, like there's this girl sitting on the counter. And uh, Oya's character rips like off all her clothes and she takes like the soaking wet shirt from the rain, and the the way the shot's framed is hilarious to me because <laughs> they've got the girl there as she's, and then Oya rings the 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 shirt, and all the water drips, and she's all in front of her. It's like you get it. She's making her wet. She's yeah. turned on. It's so sexual. You get it. <laughs> yeah, it's so overexposed. You can't miss the point. It's meant to be though. It's entirely meant to be. It's not Wells talking down to the audience. It's Wells exaggerating the aspects of the the sexually revolutionary films to a point of ridiculousness for mockery. There's a similar shot, or that reminds me of that anyway, uh, towards the end of the film within the film, where there's the giant uh, kind of the um, structure that's very phallically shaped. And she mm-hmm. goes up to it with the scissors she's been carrying and just starts stabbing the hell out of it. Yeah. And, and it's like, hmm, I wonder what the symbolism is in this shot. And there's a lot of obvious stuff, like the camera is a phallus. And they're, uh, they, they, yeah, they explicitly spell that out. You know, the, <laughs> the interviewers in the car. Is the camera a projection of the, you know, the audience eyes? Is the, the camera just a phallus? <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous things like that that are so on the nose. But I'm sure those are like actual questions that's been asked of wells before other kind of things just um, and i think you could tell this is someone who's thought about movies maybe too much uh who's understood the dynamics of how they work and inside them and i think something that's that's something that separates it from citizen kane where he didn't know enough to apply that kind of technique and this is more an expression of like a pure technique Right, this is very much so more a commentary on filmmaking of the time, and it's very obvious. If you're not aware of the kind of filmmaking going on at the time, a lot of that stuff is going to go over your head. So I think that context is really important to get what Wells is getting at, because otherwise you'll look at those scenes out of context and say, this is ridiculous and over-the-top and even grotesque in how sexual it is. You're not going to understand what Wells was getting at if you don't know (laughs) I think part of the absurdity of it is that it feels like a 2018 independent movie. Whatever Wells was doing 40 years ago is what people are doing today, so it doesn't feel out of place at all with the kind of stuff people are making right now. The innovative editing technique and the way that he shot and framed everything is independent technique today. 
it's it's really interesting because the other side of the wind is so much to it. It is at once a very seventies centric film mm-hmm. in style and its commentary, and it, even its editing. You know, a lot of the aspects of it. But at the same time, everything about it is also still way ahead of its time. Like nobody would have got this film, I'm sure, had it come out at the time. But it would have been even more profound had it been released at that time. But even now, there's still no film being made like this. You know, even though many of the mockumentary films have come since then, nothing has reached this level of artistry or significance. You know, so it just shows. And you we've talked about we've talked about how the ones that followed it weren't very serious about it. They were all mockumentaries, and yeah, this is mock- framing it like someone's following. There are so many people following this director, and they're all trying to document something, but nobody's getting the right story, except Wells, can- maybe. It's weird to compare it to something like this is Spinal Tap because it's not really the same thing at all. Right. It's sort of the same in that there are people with cameras falling around this celebrity to document this event going on. But the way in which it's done is so different. You know, the conceit of the documentary is there in Spinal Tap. Like, this is the premise. So they have these instances of much longer shots, much more intentional shots. Whereas with The Other Side of the Wind, it's a, it's a you know, hodgepodge of everything they could gather from these various people following around, these hundreds of people following him around. And so everything is very frenetic in its pacing. Shots will last half a second, only a couple seconds long. There are no longer takes here, like, at all. You know, the longest take is probably only several seconds. Yeah. Um, something I'd be interested in, you went to see the film recently uh, in cinema, so I'd like to yes. hear your experience so, yeah, this was very interesting. I was very fortunate to do this. I, you know, I, I've seen the film twice now. I watched it first thing when I woke up on Friday as soon as it was available. Got up in my PJs and whatnot and so, pulled up Netflix and watched it. But then the next day I went and saw it at my local Fancy Smanchy Theater down in Portland. And I was very fortunate enough because it was one of those six 35mm print screenings of it. So it was, you know, the real deal. As well as I was fortunate enough to be there with the editor of the film, Bob Murawski, in attendance. So that was uh, very nice to see. You know, I got to talk with him a little bit after as well and gain a little bit more insight on the film. And do you feel like that colored your uh, perception of it differently, seeing the 35? It was interesting to see because uh, one of the things is that it, it wasn't as glamorous to me i suppose is seeing uh, some other 35 millimeter prints of screen and that's m- no fault of the films per se but it's because of the way it's structured because stuff was shot on eight millimeter and 16 millimeter so having it blown up to that full 35 millimeter size you lose a little bit there it was still grand to see you know on that and i absolutely loved seeing the screening but it was definitely and did the editor not- have anything to say it to oh. uh on yeah, the def- experience yeah, so, uh, you know, I got a lot of uh, information with him and whatnot as well. How he kind of found out about the project in the first place was that he lived nearby the cinematographer for the film, Gary Graver. And he kind of came across Gary Graver because Bob Morawski is a big fan. Uh, he does a lot of restorations of old kind of B-grindhouse movies and whatnot. Uh, one of the interesting things he said in it is, I don't know if you remember, but early on when they're in the car and the other side of the wind, they pass a theater marquee with a uh, film playing called uh, I Drink Your Blood. Mm-hmm. And he found it, when he found that in the footage, it was funny because he actually owns the right to that film. Oh. So that was an, <laughs> Yeah. So it was just like an interesting little thing. He wasn't originally going to put it in, he said, but after Peter Bogdanovich said there, he's like, oh, God, we have to include that because of the drive-in part later. You know, Wells would love that or whatever. Right. So they included that. So, yeah. Uh, Gary Graver, the cinematographer of the film, was actually born here in Portland. And Mm -hmm. the the Hollywood Theater, the one I went to, was one he went to often. So it was kind of a nice uh, bookend to have him come back there and whatnot. But Gary tried I mean, I can't think of a better opportunity than that to go see this film. Uh, Yeah. And so very much so because Bob Morawski was good friends with Gary Graver and Gary Graver didn't get to see the completion of the film before he died. Uh, in 2006, I believe. Is that right? Uh, yeah, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of took it on as his own mission to complete it for his friend's sake, even more so than Wells. And, you know, but, you know, Morawski poured over the footage for this for a long, long time. And he actually gave a little bit of insight as well as to what parts Wells finished and what parts he did more so. And that was interesting to hear because if you don't 
get that straight from the source. You can't know watching the film. The editing is so well done that you don't know when Wells comes in and when Murawski takes over. Was there any part that surprised you that wasn't done by Wells? Yes, I was actually very surprised. Wells uh, had edited most of the film within the film. That was most of the 40 minutes of stuff he had done Mm -hmm. before he died. But one thing he didn't touch, apparently, that Murawski did completely was that bathroom sequence in the club. That Mm. whole bit up until there. And it's, it's one of my favorite edited sequences in the film, so I was shocked to hear that because of the various cuttings to it and the points. The pacing of it's fantastic. That's an incredibly edited scene. Um, uh, and some of uh, the stuff Wells had done, he did some of the stuff establishing Jake at the party in the first place, I remember hearing as well. But generally, all of the stuff like at the party itself, that's mostly Morawski's editing in there, doing all that. I guess we should talk about, there's the... If you go on to Netflix and go in, it's hidden deep into trailers. Uh, there's the 40-minute documentary about the editing of the film. Uh, yep, you've seen and, it. Yep, I, I really appreciated that. I think even more so than the companion documentary they made because, you know, I don't know, there's a much more emotionally satisfying sense to me of having, seeing it all come together and all of the people in the park seeing mm-hmm. it. Watching, like, Peter Bogdanovich and, you know, Frank Marshall and everyone, like, watching the completed film it almost brings a tear up into my eye, you know, as they're finally seeing this vision, 40 years in the making, being completed. I mean, at the end of both of the documentaries, there's like a kind of tragedy about uh, how this went, that Wells couldn't see it to completion, that that it's sort of in memory, that uh, that sometimes the best work of an artist you find after they're dead. So I think that's an interesting thing to search on as well, is to why this didn't get completed because it wasn't just because you know wells spent too long on it or you know it was hard to raise money a lot of that was in there as well but <clears throat> there were some bigger issues that got in the way and one of the biggest being a very large legal entanglement that tied up the film for more than 30 years before it could even be considered being touched so how wells had to get the funding for the film because they didn't go through traditional means is that he went through various other studios most of them being foreign ones one of them he went to was a french owned film uh, or french replaced film company owned by an iranian uh, an iranian film company and that's where he got a majority of funding from well the problem with that was that the brother uh, the the, the guy who owned it was the brother of the shah of iran Mm -hmm. and so in 1979 when the iranian government was overthrown everything went into a panic and they seized as many assets as they could claim and so it got tied up in these legal issues for a long, long time. The film, the negative, actually just sat in the vault in Paris for <laughs> 30 years, untouched. Nobody even knew if it was in any good condition at all because nobody could get to it because of all the legal issues. So when, you know, it was very much so when this kind of undertaking to finish the project kind of came about, nobody even knew if it was going to be possibly done, like what was going to be taken care of, you know. And I think we look at it today as... 2018 is one of the one of our best films of the year and it sat there for so long just collecting dust Mm -hmm. i think i mean there's i suppose a commentary on that that the best you know one of the best films of 2018 is a film from 40 years ago but it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily fair to compare the other side of the wind to some recent releases like this this is a whole other thing you know this is even one of Orson Welles' greatest works within his own filmography, you know, and all of his stuff is great in at least one aspect, you know, or more. I don't think it's a surprise when a Welles film comes out that we're heralding it as a, a little bit better than some of the modern stuff. Uh, I don't feel like uh, Avengers stacks up or <laughs> whatever's no. coming out at the cinema. <laughs> but they're also completely different beasts. It's totally unfair to compare them, but yeah, this is like going for that more of a cinematic achievement thing and i think we both agree that it absolutely succeeds at that i'd say it lived up to the claim for me uh, many years just hearing about it i know i wasn't as hyped as you were but uh i think my hype came after watching it that i uh was able to buy into everything i had heard the legend came true and it's such a big picture it's bigger than itself one of my biggest fears going in was that i had built the film up far too much. Orson Welles as a director is already put on such a high pedestal as like this god of cinema because he created the supposed greatest film ever made you know, it's Citizen Kane at 25, mm-hmm. which is an incredible achievement still certainly, but I, I do think we have 
put you know we have praised him just a bit too much of a realistic you know point where he's no longer seen as a person necessarily so and i definitely was victim to that especially in anticipation of this film that sounded radical and intense and insane and just everything about it sounded like the most amazing thing ever and i'm like there's no way this film could live up to the expectation that i set for it but it i feel like did. it's good to clear up the legend of his later career other than you know just the kind of derisive commentary of him getting like fat in a french cafe and drinking too much um just becoming a big uh bludgeon looking man uh but there was still a creative spark at the end of his career and he there created was. something significant that lasts so i mean and this thing is that orson wells as a personality is almost larger you know than he is as a director uh, i don't mean that literally god that that would be offensive well, that was a frustrating <laughs> thing in, in the you know, one of, the, one of the saddest things I see is that, you know, if you ever hear about Orson Welles, people who don't actually appreciate him, they will just continually share and say the same thing over and over again. It's that stupid wine commercial that he did in that kind of drunken state. And they show a clip from that in the documentary, The Love Me When I'm mm-hmm. Dead. And, and it's sad to me to see that because it's, it's such an unflattering and offensive portrait that we keep repainting of Orson, you know, and I don't think that's fair to his character. Yeah, he was a little hedonistic in his lifestyle in some ways, um, you know, but he, you know, I, I guess he had the opportunity to do that. You know, that's that's his choice still, and he's a, you know, he's a person. We shouldn't keep, you know, hammering on for being for being large. It's not like he, you know, just did that to himself necessarily. I mean, he was prone to that from even a young age. You can see still in his face he was, you know, a little bit of a chubby kid. He's got yeah. the round, you know, face there. Let's stop making fat jokes about Orson Welles, please. <laughs> Tired of it. It's easy. Do something else. Orson Swells. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> but no, I feel like... <laughs> yeah, you're done. <laughs> Should you we call it? Orson Welles to me now. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It, I feel like that's kind of part and parcel from the time he came from, that you'd make uh, hedonistic things and that men would live a different kind of lifestyle. I feel like that's the kind of person... The only kind of person that can make a really significant Hemingway-like film. Like we watched uh, Black Hunter, or uh, White Hunter Blackheart. And that's a very similar take on, uh, you know, same characters. Almost the same story. It's almost literally the same. I mean, it's about John Huston, you know, the director, when he was making African Queen. Right. It's a very Hemingway-like role, and now we've got John Huston playing in an intentionally Hemingway-like role. They call him Hemingway at one point. They call him the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I don't know if you caught this as well, but mm-hmm. like Hemingway was such the inspiration for Orson Welles that the date of death for um, uh, Hughes' character you know, in the film... Uh, July is, 2nd, yeah. Yeah, is July 2nd. That's when you know uh, Hemingway shot himself as well. And so, I mean, if, if you can't already gather from the film that the car crash at the end is you know, intentionally suicidal, then there, mm-hmm. there you go. Oh, I guess that's... Uh, one thing we've not talked about, do you want to get into the actual reasonings and kind of the subtext of the film and what goes on with Houston's character there? Um, how do you mean by that? So the the motivation, kind of the, the, the kind of dark trouble at the center of uh, Jake Hannaford is this struggle with this machismo and um, his, who, who his true self is. Yeah, so I, I don't know I mean, if, if if you didn't necessarily get it, but it was very clear to me is that he sh- clearly struggles with his own uh, homosexual desires. Right. Okay, it's very explicit in the film, even though they don't outright say it. So part of like part of like the Hemingway legend is like this Catholic guilt about your sexuality, and you know Hemingway, we talk about a lot that he looking in the past that there was this latent sexuality about a man who was repressed all his life and. Uh, didn't get along with his mother and it's like a payback of his relationship being better with men uh, i mean you look at the men of like the 1920s they're very flamboyant like fitzgerald are you kidding well the, i found at least is that the whole idea is that he's trying to repress this his machismo nature this personality that he has to give off rejects this inherent homosexual lifestyle that he clearly caters towards and so and they, they kind of even go over in the film is that how he's done this more and more with people he's trying to shape these actors they save, uh, you know, he saved apparently the the main actor played by John Random. Uh, I think it was his name. Something Random. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the, he saved him from 
uh, drowning, you know, after he tried to kill himself. And it's very also explicit um, that later on they point out that eventually the abuse uh, that, you know, his leading star's character endures from Hannah Ford drives him back to, you know, suicide. And that ultimately weighs on Hannah Ford's conscience for the rest of the film. It's kind of very cryptic early on. Like, I'm not sure exactly if it's kind of, like, hushed or whatnot. They only, they only really talk about him... Um, you know, leaving the film, leaving the, the production for a while. You see him walking off the set. But then they pretty explode that pretty explicitly later by saying he hung himself on a chandelier. I think it has a lot of that and some religious uh, undertones under it. Um, just commentary about what God is. Is he the camera? Is he the person? Um, what What is the film reflecting in that for you? Mm-hmm. Well, that's also interesting as well, I think, is... Um, you know, because you got that perspective as well. They also try and label God as a woman in the film. Mm-hmm. They go that pretty specifically. And so that aspect of it is an interesting one. It's a very much so, like, they, they try and frame the idea of the camera within the film, within the film, as this kind of voyeuristic presence, always there, watching these two, wanting them to to make it or whatever it is, you know, and kind of by the end. But, right. yeah, I think almost it comes across to me is that the film within the, the other side of the wind is almost like an excuse for uh, Hannah Ford to explore this sexuality, this aspect. Like, almost he's trying to get into the, the mindset of the Oyo Kadar character and trying to, you know, be predatory and jump on his leading star and get him to. Because all the scenes where you see him directing the, the sex aspects of it all are very uncomfortable almost to watch. And that's where the, the John Dale character kind of walks off the set, you know, mm-hmm. and that's when everything kind of goes awry. I think some of my favorite scenes are from the party where those scenes are cutting so quickly from the conversations and um, you're getting a lot of philosophical conversations, but also uh, film criticism level uh, discussions of what the nature of film is, uh, what people are creating, uh, just the role of the creator in their own work. And then you have like performances that are supposed to be like Pauline Kael and critics of his time. So mm-hmm. he's a, it's very wrapped up in its own time. Yeah, it definitely is. I think um, one of the, my favorite things about it is that I found is that Wells only implements the specific reality of the world when it's necessary. It's all to reveal something about it. If you, if you pay attention to some of the shots, they don't always mm-hmm. make sense with things going on. Like there's shots of camera people directing right at each other which doesn't make sense because that's not what they'd be filming necessarily. There's shots like uh, in the car, I know, is that they talk, um, you know, like, like you could see shots from outside the car while they're driving, which don't make sense because nobody would be outside the car driving. Right, yeah. And I think some of my favorite aspects of that comes when at the end, when the entire facade is dropped, John Dale's character comes back into play and he interacts with him, even though we know he's dead. And then you've got the, the shot of the final film kind of fading off of the screen as it comes back. I'm really curious. No, I didn't get to ask about that, but I would love to if that shot was something that was conceived later or if Wells had made that shot because yeah, you can't, I think, you, you don't see it. I think the elements of movie making, how movies are shown, it's all incredible. But uh, you think uh, we should start wrapping up here? Yeah, uh, I guess just on that, that last note, I just want to say is that, you know, I love that aspect of the film where by the end of it, the idea of it not, you know, being portrayed as this kind of real event is just completely gone, and mm-hmm. the art really just is full on display. It's a fantastic film, you know. Definitely uh, go out and see it. Make sure you rave about it to everybody because we're not going to get anything else like this again. This is a significant film. It's a major accomplishment, not only just in the restoration of it, but just within Wells's filmography. It's, you know, I mean... extremely. Yeah. I think we're both very happy with it. I think it's one of the best edited films I've ever seen. So I'm I'm pushing for it at the end of the year. I'm sure uh, in about two months we'll be talking about it again. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about this for years and years, I'm sure. I love it, absolutely. You know, And it's so rewarding even on rewatches. I recommend going and watching it multiple times. You're going to get a lot out of it. For David, this is Calvin saying adios. And we'll be back with you next week with an episode on Ridley Scott's Legend. Thanks for listening. Jake Hannaford. The Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents.
is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Patrick's new movie? The other side of the wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. So you old guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about? Well, we don't actually know. What do we know? Jake is just making it up as he goes along.